Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. The book of Nehemiah chapter 10. If you're unfamiliar with the Word of God, if you open up to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably be in the Psalms. And you can turn back just a handful of pages and you'll find your way to Nehemiah. If you hit Ezra, you've gone a little too far. Nehemiah chapter 10. As I mentioned last week, we would begin with verse 38. However, in the Hebrew Bible, verse 38 is the first verse of chapter 10. And that's where we'll begin this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 in our copy of the Word of God. Now because of all of this, we are cutting an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now on the sealed document were the following names. Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Saraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genethon, Baruch, Meshalem, Abijah, Mijamin, Meaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These were the priests and the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benuai of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, also their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benani, the heads of the people, Parosh, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Bunai, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aneah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbana, Maaseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Meluk, Harim, Baana. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their relatives, their nobles, and are entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by the hand of Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and His judgments and His statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not receive from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also set ourselves under the commandments to give yearly 
one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people in order to bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of Yahweh our God as it is written in the law and to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of Yahweh annually and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the towns where we serve. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. The utensils of the sanctuary are there, as well as the priests who are ministering and the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not forsake the house of our God. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and we'll enter into a brief time of prayer to ask God's blessing on this time. Yahweh our God, we thank you as we do each week for your word. You have fed us so abundantly and so perfectly through the giving of your word and here each of us in our laps likely is holding a completed copy of the Word of God, inerrant, infallible, finished, and for our edification from cover to cover. Lord, we thank you for that. But Lord, we confess to you that apart from a work of your Spirit, we are unable to understand and apply this law to our hearts. So we ask that now your Holy Spirit would work amongst us as he does each week, for which we are so grateful. And we ask him to do it again today, to feed us from your Word so aptly that we could go here as confirmed, strengthened, and prepared people of God for the work that you have given us to do in the coming days. We pray all of this in the name of mighty King Jesus. Amen. Well, this week's text got me thinking a little bit about when we first planted Christ the King. Jeremy and I didn't know what to expect when we set out on this Endeavor. We had been told that church planting was difficult and that most church plants die within the first few years. And to that sour soup that we were forecasted, planting in a county uh, where you, your church would quickly become infamous and even reviled, um, you can add to that uh, that the formation of our church would be called into question. And practically everyone in the congregation would be plagued with sickness for the first two years. 
And the county government would largely cringe at the mention of our name. If I was to say that's all a part of our church planting equation, would any of that make your projections for this church more positive? But at the beginning of the work, 70 souls covenanted with us to begin this church. And in spite of the above-mentioned challenges, growth has been, as we can all see, very rapid. Members attest to victory over long-held sins. The weekly prayer meetings remain heavily attended. There is a never-ending stream of hospitality and fellowship going on inside of homes in this congregation. The grace of God, needless to say, has been overwhelming. Well, like the Israelites in Ezra and Nehemiah, if we think back to the beginning of the days of Christ the King, we chartered as your elders with this new work in Anderson County to first reject the emotionally charged and theologically mutilated worship and preaching that many of us grew up with. And instead, we covenanted to prioritize a renewed worship and a radical commitment to the primary doctrines of Scripture. We covenanted to refuse the individualistic model of church and the treatment of the weekly assembly like a gym membership rather than a binding agreement. Desiring instead a congregation made up again of born-again believers who worship together, eat together, play together, and respect one another's convictions when it comes to matters of conscience. We repudiate dividing the church up into separate services, need I say, separate churches, with a long list of programs that divide the family and sap time for building healthy discipleship in the home. Instead, we would be a church that prioritizes prayer, family discipleship, evangelistic fervor, and being local in every sense of the word. Revulsion describes our feelings towards soft preaching, which panders to men's and by men's, I mean women's, sensibilities, and passes over hard texts, the way the priest and the Levite pass by the man beaten half to death in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're committed to preaching all of the Bible without wincing or stuttering, preaching all of Christ for all of life. Yes, this is what we set out to do. And God will hold us as your elders to this word that we have given because as we'll see in the text this morning, Yahweh God takes covenants very seriously. Well, this morning we're essentially reaching the climax of the combined books of both Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember that in the Hebrew Bible these are actually one text. And this, chapter 10, is the climax of all that's been going on up to this point. The re-covenanting of the assembly of the people of God. Remember what's taken place to get us to this point. In Ezra, they had to rebuild the temple, and then they had to, if you'll allow me, rebuild the people. Ezra 1-6 to tells of the first Persian decree of release of exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. They were set free to restore worship, erect both altar and temple, and they completed the job 23 years later in 515. The latter half of Ezra, chapters 7 to 10, 
describes a decimated people who came out of Babylon in body, but unfortunately we find out not in heart. So Ezra the priest was sent to Jerusalem in 458 B.C. to lead the Jews through a process of repentance from sins, primarily in the scandal of the marrying of foreign women. Now Nehemiah tells a very similar story. Rebuild the city and then rebuild the people. In chapters 1 to 6, in 445 B.C., when Nehemiah was sent back to Jerusalem with, at this point it was likely the third wave of exiles, their purpose was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Through his shrewd leadership and management, construction of this wall was completed in just 52 days. Then in chapters 7 to 13, we see the people need help again. So Ezra makes his reprise with several weeks of Torah study and appointed feast days culminating in a new covenant being cut. This brings us to our present context. The date of Nehemiah chapter 10 is 445 B.C. and it is October the 31st. Some shrewd student of church history will recognize the significance. God loves this day. It's Reformation Day. On this same day, nearly 2,000 years in the future, God would ignite the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther would supposedly, as the story goes, nail the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And we can all say together that certainly God writes the best stories. Ninety-three years have elapsed since the first wave of exiles caravanned from Persia. And here they are. They have a rebuilt temple, a rebuilt wall, and the theme of semper reformanda for they the people. Again and again, always reforming, always coming back to God. Now I want you to look with me at verse 38. And it reads in the LSB, now, because of all of this, we are cutting an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I want you to note that word agreement in the Legacy Standard Version. In the King James Version, the translation is a sure covenant. And in the ESV, it is firm covenant. The Hebrew word amanah means surety, guarantee, and, most interestingly, a pledge of fealty or faith. Now, I have no idea why so many of the modern translations choose the term agreement as the LSB does. The idea of a covenant is explicit in both the word and in the context of the passage. These exiles pledge, if you'll allow me, in faith... To believe Yahweh, to follow Yahweh, and to obey Yahweh. God's people have, you could say, been saved. They've been given new life. They've been called out of the exile of their darkness. They have been brought back to the promised land. They have been given back their nation, their city, and their worship. All of this was done for them by the abundant compassion of Yahweh their God. They recognize this and notice this, in response to all of God's goodness to save them, they pledge their faith to Him. 
So I ask this morning, lost person, why have you not pledged your faith to Christ Jesus yet? What is keeping you from putting your faith in Christ Jesus alone for salvation? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it bitterness towards him? Are you still holding back on Christ because you want to try a little harder on your own? How long do you think it will take to convince him that you are good enough for heaven? Do you even still think that you can? Do you realize that everything you need to be delivered out of darkness, God has already accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ? Are you waiting till you're a little older? Do you need to get your life together? How much longer will you put him off? Because here's the truth of the matter. You're never going to be good enough. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion on the globe. Christianity is not a do religion, but a done religion. Good works do play an integral part in the Christian life, but they flow from the grace and faith that we have been given for Christ Jesus and from Christ Jesus, but not to merit grace and faith. These Jews, once again are making a pledge here to specifically keep the old covenant of their forefathers. And spoiler alert, less than three chapters from now, they're going to break every vow they make. All three of them. But the righteousness of God that you need to come into the presence of Almighty God, lost person, to be a renewed son or daughter in right standing in the family, to be clothed, in the garment of perfect obedience to all of the commandments of Moses, to be called again by the name of Yahweh God, you will not get from your faithfulness, not alone, but only from Christ. Jesus Christ lived his entire life without transgressing one iota of the law of God. His obedience was matchless. And when he died in the sinner's place, On the cross of Calvary, and when he secured justification by rising from the dead, he made a way for anyone, in any time or any place, who pledges faith to Christ alone, not to a list of rules, but to the God who kept all the rules on his behalf. He made a way to receive before God the Father true and everlasting righteousness through Jesus Christ. The best part is that Jesus is today, 2023, this very day, still willing to mete out his complete covenant obedience to any who pledge their faith to him alone, who forsake of trusting in their own works, but trust only in the works of Christ. Believe this good news, lost person, and even this morning, you will be saved. Now I want you to look again with me at verse 38 and the language of cutting a covenant. It might sound strange, but if you're unfamiliar with this concept, the idea was that at the signing of the document, animals would be presented, and then they would be severed in two, and the people would walk through the middle of the halves of those animals set to either side, and this symbolized the judgment that they would incur if they did not keep the covenant of Yahweh their God. You see this most clearly in Genesis 15 when Abram cut animals in pieces at the command of God and then fell into a deep sleep. The Bible states, 
Now it happened that the sun had set, and it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh, there's the word, cut a covenant with Abram. In this case, Yahweh himself alone. Abram didn't have any word here. Yahweh himself alone pledged to receive the punishment if he did not do as he had promised to give Abraham's descendants the land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's how committed God is, by the way, to keeping every promise he makes. If he does not uphold his promises, he is not God and he is liable to judgment. And he knows that. So God keeps all of his promises. Now, Nehemiah doesn't make mention of the animals being cut in two here, but the language implies that this idea is certainly present. Notice then the list of names that follows. In verse 1, you have the princes or governors being listed. In verses 2 through 8, the priests are mentioned. In verses 9 through 13, the Levites' names are given. And in verses 14 through 27, the heads of families' houses are listed for you. Just a couple of interesting things to note about this list of names. You see there that Ezra's name is not mentioned, and there's no reason given for why. Zedekiah's name is mentioned. This is not the prophet from Ezra chapter 5, however. Um, potentially, this was a secretary of Nehemiah, his name being listed right afterward. 21 priests' names are mentioned, and some are not repeated again in chapter 12. And this list isn't meant to be exhaustive. Room is made for this in verse 29 when we read the rest of the people. There's an inclusion of those whose names weren't listed in the above. When our children have a disagreement or a dispute over something, I want to use that tool for this project, or I want to sit in the front seat when mom's not in the car, we often ask them to go somewhere private with one another and come up with an agreement of sorts. Something that settles the matter and makes everybody happy. This is usually some kind of compromise, like you can use the tool for 30 minutes and then I'll use it in 30 minutes. Or you can sit in the front seat to the destination and I'll sit there on the way home. Everyone is usually happy until someone wants to break the covenant. But dad, I'm not done with my project yet. They can't have the tool yet. Dad, they just need to be patient. After all, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And so is keeping your word. <laughs> We've never actually had that conversation, but it made me laugh to think about it. Now, this proves when things like this happen, when children have these agreements that they set up and then they disagree with it, with one another about how it's supposed to play out. This proves that the child cares nothing for the covenant that they made or the person to whom they've made it with. They only care what they are going to get out of it. Christ the King church members, do you care about your covenant promises to this body or those to whom you made them with? Are you here because of what you get out of this fellowship and perhaps nothing more. Listen to some of the things that you committed to do in and for this body when you signed your church covenant. 
You committed to trust and obey the word of God as the supreme and final authority, faithfully defending the doctrines of the church. You covenanted to promote and protect the unity of the church by walking together in Christian love, speaking only in ways that are edifying, seeking reconciliation quickly, admonishing one another as occasion may require. You swore to take part in the edification of the church by giving your time and money cheerfully to the ministry of the church, praying for the church as a whole and for each of its members, giving the church sacred preeminence over all other institutions of human origin, engaging in family worship and private devotion on a regular basis. You said that you would be faithful kingdom witnesses by seeking the salvation of others through the proclamation of the gospel in Anderson County and throughout the world. Does Jesus Christ hold us any less responsible to these and the other covenant promises that we made than he held this reconstituted Israel to? You might respond by saying, well, if I don't keep the covenant, I doubt I'll be cut up into bits. But will we incur a loving yet fatherly discipline for not keeping our word, for our yes not being its yes? By God's grace, when we enjoy the benefits of new covenant life, and covenant membership is a huge part of that, let us not forget the seriousness with which God takes these vows. He commands in Deuteronomy 23, When you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and it will be a sin in you. You might respond by saying, I didn't make promises or vows when I became a covenant member. I just signed a document and said that I would do those things. That's fine. I understand that some people have a problem with language of vowing or swearing. But I need you to hear this. Your yes still means yes. Conscience doesn't trump covenant responsibility. Jesus said, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. His teaching on vows in the Sermon on the Mount does not in any way contradict Jesus' own teaching on vows in Deuteronomy 23, nor is it abrogated. He's speaking against, in the Sermon on the Mount, adding words to your vows to make them more potent, you might say. I swear by heaven, I vow in the name of the king, so on and so forth. For those opposed to covenant membership, the polemic will likely be that it's not in the New Testament. But in the words of Dr. Glenn Sunshine, do you believe that God speaks throughout the course of human history, including the Old Testament? If so, then why does he need to repeat himself? Now, we're going to dive deeper into this in just a minute. But in order for this church to continue to see God's favor and success, we must honor our covenant commitments to one another. This is just a suggestion. I'm not making a new law here. But you might want to print out a copy of the text of your church covenant and hang it somewhere in your home so you can refer to it from time to time. Some place you spend some time at. Maybe at a desk. You might put it somewhere where you like to read. You can look over it every once in a while and read through the, the different things that you covenanted with and said, okay, how am I doing on that one? Just reminding yourself from time to time, how am I doing on my covenant obligations and fulfilling the things that I swore to God that I would do in this church? 
Now, let's look at the next section, this big cluster here, verses 28 to 39. And I want to take it as one big chunk of text. Israel has, at this point, signed the covenant document. You see all the names listed there above. And in order to complete the ceremony, the congregation now takes an oath. They swear. We are all, from verse 29, entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by the hand of Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and His judgments and His statutes. Now the minor partners under contract had to swear to uphold their end of the bargain, and if not, they would trigger a curse. This is covenant cause and effect. Keep the commandments, blessings come. Break the commandments, the curse is activated and repentance is required to restore the relationship. Commentator Charles Fincham rightly captures the moment when he said, All in the community who were clean and thus separated from the foreigners took on themselves to keep in practice the law of God, the Pentateuch. With the renewal of the covenant, they came into renewed relationship with God, a relationship of obedience to the precepts of His law. Now this is the culmination of the entire ceremony which we started back at the beginning of chapter 9. I would say it's the culmination of the entire ceremony started back in chapter 9 almost. But you see there's quite a bit of text that follows after they swear to keep the whole law of God. Notice they mention three additional things that they are vowing not to do. In verse 30, they will not intermarry with the nations. In verse 31, they won't break the Sabbath or the year of Jubilee. In verses 32 to 39, that largest portion of text, they won't neglect the tithe and the service of the temple. Now, there are a number of things that we could say throughout this passage, historically, theologically, typologically, but I believe what's most important for us this morning is this. The children of Israel reconstitute to bring themselves back into covenant with Yahweh and they reconstitute against sins that were common in their day. Though they covenant to walk in all of God's law and to keep and do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and His judgments and His statutes from verse 29... In verses 30, 31, and 32 through 39, they swear to not fall into marrying foreigners, Sabbath breaking, and temple neglect, all of which were common in their day. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon from Ezra's day that many of the people, including leading men, had intermarried with the peoples of the lands. Sabbath breaking was apparently going on during this very time through a loophole in the law where Gentiles would sell goods on the Sabbath and the Jews would buy it from them thinking, I'm not doing any work, it's just the lost guys doing work. So I can go buy from him because I'm technically not breaking the Sabbath. Lastly, during the construction of the temple, the people had neglected their tithes and contributions for the rebuilding work and the Lord's house, this is from Haggai chapter 1, lay in waste while each of you runs to his own house. Out of 663 commandments in the Torah, they singled out the three that were kind of 
acceptable, in vogue, passable in their day. Now, one of the greatest sins of the modern American church is that it adamantly refuses to preach against sin, specifically the sin common amongst its own people. And that's why part of our mission includes speaking boldly to the issues of our day. The elders know it's hard to be frank about sin, and so we, are committed, we have committed to you from the start that we would always be honest and always speak out in order to protect the flock, even from the sins of your own heart. Let me ask you a question. If you had to narrow down the sin proclivities of our day to just three, and I don't mean the sins which the lost are more prone to, or even the sins of the lukewarm Big Eva machine. I'm talking about Christ the King. Just like these exiles in Nehemiah 10, if we were covenanting against three particular sins today, in an effort to fight them and gain victory over them, what would those three sins be? The elders visited around this question this week, and here's some of our thoughts. Number one, not believing and not trusting God. All sin flows from this. Symptoms of it are a lack of joy, an ungodly fear or anxiety about anything, a lack of motivation, you could go on. Number two, and this one's gendered. I've got one for men and one for women. For men, the spirit of passivity. This leads to sloth, indecisiveness, fits of wrath, repeatedly turning down fellowship invites, skipping out on prayer meetings, always asking your wife what she wants to do, essentially letting her set the course of the family. For women, it's a spirit of control. A desire to control everything, maintaining a bitter attitude towards those, including God, who have a greater jurisdiction than she does. Having an appearance of godliness amongst the sisters of the church while using covert tactics to manipulate the direction of the family at home. And number three, a lack of self-control. This could be an obsession with food and drink of any amount. This could be an inordinate Concern with health and therapies, natural, organic, grain-free, GMO-free, joy-free, etc. <laughs> it could be an obsession with certain hobbies, poor scheduling of family time, scrolling Twitter, neglecting prayer and the word, refusal to discipline the body and the mind, or in making a claim before everyone that you know that you go to a family-integrated church where we say that there are no parenting-free zones and for the duration of the service, for the most part, we get it right. But afterward, during fellowship meal and outdoor time, parents often lead the charge in age-segregated times. This isn't the de facto rule that adults must always be with their kids. But dads who realize that they haven't seen their children in around two hours, and moms who sit with their friends thinking thoughts like, this conversation is such a blessing to me. I know my husband's going to watch the kids. These sorts of things show a lack of self-control. Now, 
That's a short summary of the three that Jeremy, Daniel, and I would likely narrow it down to. And if any of that hits you really hard, I want you to take a step back for just a minute to thank God. And I want you to take a step back for just a minute and to recognize God's faithfulness on your life. Nobody here at this church is promoting women in leadership or parroting BLM or SJW trash or promoting heresy or requesting Philip to lead us in some Jesus culture music during worship. Whether or not Philip would like that is beside the point. <laughs> Almost all of our congregation tithes regularly and I will say generously, very generously. Most marriages are in good places here. Children are fed by fathers from the word consistently. Our women and daughters are modest in appearance. And evangelism is a priority oftentimes for entire households. God has brought each of us already so far in Christ. So, what if we look to the sins that were most common to us those agreeable sins, those acceptable sins, and we put them before the Lord in prayer, and we laid out our argument pleading with Him for victory, and we committed to one another for accountability and fought regularly until we had victory over specific sins. That's what these people in Nehemiah 10 are trying to do. It's exactly what they're trying to do. We're going to go ahead and say out loud in front of everybody, these are the things that we're struggling with. And God, we swear above everything else in your law that we're going to fight these things. Last week, during a membership interview, a question was asked to Daniel and myself about our statement of faith and the doctrine of sanctification. Question 9 of our statement of faith under the heading sanctification says, And though the sanctifying process is not completed or perfected in this life, hear me say that, it is definitely possible for the Christian to possess a clear conscience and to live in such a, such a state so as to not know of any present sin against himself. To sum up, that means that you can have victory over specific sins in this life, beloved. You can. What would our church look like in 15 years from now if our men covenant to do away with all passivity and our women rejected a sinfully manipulative spirit that they see everywhere around them in the world, what if we trusted God more consistently? What if we attained a self-control in which we could think of no present sin against ourselves in the area of our control? Beloved, I'm here to tell you that in Christ... All things, even these things, are possible. So let us covenant together to fight the sins of our day. And let us fight them hard. And let us know that in our failures, Christ is sufficient for our need. Now I'll say one additional thing as I close this morning. This church has been under some fire as of late. We are no strangers to illness, you all know that. But let's add to that list asthma attacks and kidney stones, infections in children and surgeries for children, accidents leading to 
acute infections, numerous equipment failures and financial trials, and a large number of our women who were pregnant have miscarried. And yes, I need to say this. I just spoke about discipline that comes from not keeping our covenant obligations to one another. I truly believe, however, and I want you to hear this. I truly believe, however, because the trials in this church are system-wide. It doesn't have to do with what we are doing wrong. I do believe it has to do with what we are doing right. By the grace and favor of Yahweh of hosts, we have packed up and moved to Anderson County to make a permanent settlement and covenant together by our common faith in Christ to build the kingdom of Jesus right here with brick and mortar. We're going to take every letter of the Bible seriously. We're going to take sin seriously. We're going to take our covenant obligations to grow together like Christ seriously. We aren't going back down. We are, excuse me. We aren't going to back down from the opposition we face at the county commission meetings or slander on the I Love Clinton Facebook page, which is like a dumpster fire. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we and our progeny are done, Satan will not have one stronghold left either in the town square or the cyber square. Brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. Satan hates covenant-keeping people. Because we look just like the covenant-keeping Christ that defeated him. And the one that we pledged our faith to. The dragon has left the male child caught up to God in heaven and now lives to make war on his offspring, Revelation 12. And God will use his war against us all for our good. He will turn all of our tears of sorrow into seeds of blessing for our future. So remember the covenant that you made here and be diligent to keep it. In the words of the Apostle Paul, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. His covenant-keeping faithfulness to us inspires all of our covenant-keeping faithfulness to Him. Let us go and do likewise. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are building your kingdom through covenants. And even this little covenant that this body here has sworn to hold together to and to serve one another in, you're using to build your church today. We thank you for this. And we thank you that everyone here who is in Christ Jesus is in the greatest covenant, the everlasting covenant for the paper that we signed that said Christ the King Church Covenant will one day pass away. But the new covenant that we are in under the blood of Jesus will never pass away. We thank you for this. And if there are any here today who are outside of that covenant, we pray that they would know today, even today, they can enter into that new covenant through the already finished work of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.